Good evening. Let's continue with our uh, study from last week. On uh, this is where it's really getting. I think it's really getting. It's obviously it's getting closer to where we are today. But you know, one of the things that you see, one of the main issues in the, in the whole. This is lecture seventeen on our study of church history. But everything stems from what you think of the Bible. Everything. You know, we, we, sometimes we're looking through some of these things, and we're, you're back there, you're shaking your heads, going, "What? What?" Sometimes you wonder if these people ever even read the Bible. And uh, that's what you. We wonder the same thing today. You know, there's people in the news that that work at a church or a pastor or a pastorette, and they, uh, we wonder, do they ever even read the Bible? You know, what, what, why are they promoting this? Why do, how can they believe this and call themselves Christians? Um, and so tonight you'll see that just as, just as much. A couple of the first slides are just uh, bringing us back into the context of last week. We're seeing um, uh, an influx in the United States of America, what, what is becoming the United States of America, of, of different religions that are all based on they're coming out of the protestant faith um, you've got uh, the, the puritans came here and there was a time when the bible was there was an attempt for the bible to rule to be uh, what i mean there were some people that came here and they thought they were the, the new israel coming to the new promised land and they were going to make everything just right that didn't work out real well because there weren't that many of them and there were still people and there were problems and that first generation was, was, was okay. More and more people came here, but there was all kinds of people coming. And once they had a little bit of freedom here, things went a little bit haywire. Hey, we believe this, we believe that. Everyone's going to a different state where they can believe what they want, when they want, how they want to believe it. Uh, we're free in this country now. And, that, and then there's this separation of church and state that comes about. Um, this implied separation of church and state from the First Amendment. To the, to the uh, Constitution, you've got uh, a great awakening that comes up. In the midst of the, the, uh, uh, the, our country being new, actually just a little bit prior, you've got people like Jonathan Edwards coming in and George Whitfield, and there's this great awakening. People are coming to know Christ again. didn't take but 100 years or so for them to not know Christ in this country, but God sends a very conservative, Calvinistic, Calvinistic meaning biblical, uh, revival on the land. And, and it was... It was calm for a bit, and yet uh, it slumped again. And so as people begin to fight and jockey for positions and the states are being uh, put together and there's movement to the west and there's Indians and there's wars, wars with the, even with the, not just with the Indians, but with uh, the, the Englishmen, uh, there's problems that come on the scene. And so people, some, are, some want to fight and some become pacifistic. Everyone's got a different opinion. It's just all back in the day when you listened to the king, the king said, or queen said, you believe this, and everyone believed it. If you didn't like it, you left, or you just got killed. Now it's all permitted, and so people are starting to come up with their own things. Some of it's biblical, which makes it confusing. Most of it isn't. We see in Campbellism as a good illustration. So the pink on this map represents the movement from the east to the west. Campbellism right there in that that uh, part of what would become the United States of America, Thomas Campbell was a Presbyterian minister, meaning he was Calvinistic. At least he was supposed to be. He did not approve of the sectarian nature of Protestantism, especially the practice of closed communion. Communion being restricted, as Jonathan Edwards wanted it, back in the First Great Awakening, to those who were believers. You know, when I say on Sunday mornings when we do the Lord's Supper, I always say, if you have been baptized, if you're a Christian, this is for you. If you're not, don't partake of it. It's not for you. That's a closed communion. Now, we don't police it, but that's closed communion. That's for believers. That's what communion or the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist is. He didn't like that. 
It was too sectarian to them, too much of a sect. He opened communion and welcomed others who believed in Christ in West Virginia. Now, this is huge in those days because what you do is you invite people that don't believe in Christ in, hey, come into our church. We'll let you take the Lord's Supper. You'll go to heaven because people believe that even today. Uh, I know when the, when the plate is passed, there are people who are thinking, I know I'm not a Christian. I'm not going to admit I'm a Christian, but I'll take that. It can't hurt. I've had people tell me that. It can't hurt. I'm, if I'm partaking of something that's good and religious, I'll take it. Maybe it'll be good for me. Not nutritious, but people believe that. He opened communion, and now all of a sudden the church is becoming what we call more ecumenical. More people coming in and feeling comfortable in a non-Calvinistic church, which is to say a non-biblical church. Alexander Campbell, his son, um, came to the United States to join with his father, seeking to form a Bible-only movement. Watch out for Bible-only movements. We're a Bible-only movement, but people forming Bible-only movements tend to pick and choose what we call cherry-picking. Bible-only movement should begin, let's start with the gospel. Uh, let's make sure we have the gospel down and we understand who Jesus is and what salvation is. And really, the rest of the Bible just comes together in a Bible-only movement. They couldn't get that part right. Barton Stone, we looked, took, looked at him last week, Presbyterian guy, part of the, the uh, Cane Ridge, Kentucky camp revivals. After the early Kentucky revivals had already led his Presbyterian congregation to renounce its creed and to adopt the Bible alone. These groups didn't want a creed. They didn't want a succinct, we believe this, we believe this, 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 and six straight bullet points. No creeds. The whole Bible. Well, the whole Bible. That's a big book, don't you think? And if we're going to say the Bible only, what about those places in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that say you can't mix your clothing, can't have cotton and polyester or something else? What about the places in the Bible that says you can't get a brand mark, which we... Interpret as tattoos. What about uh, I can't eat bacon? I can't eat bacon on a cheeseburger? What is life worth? (laughs) Because the Bible forbids those things. The Old Testament does. What do we do with the New Testament when we get to the New Testament where Jesus declares all foods clean? So a Bible only movement needs people who know the Bible thoroughly and can preach the Bible properly. Got to be careful, those Bible-only movement. Stone wasn't careful with it. Let's just get rid of all creeds and go with the Bible alone. Sounds good, but isn't always good. These two groups, the Campbellites and Stone's group, converged, merged into one group. Again, this is a review from last week. They just wanted to be called Christians, and so they uh, began referring to themselves as Campbellites. Today, they are the Church of Christ and the uh, what's called the Christian Church, and then you'll see it in parentheses on their, their signs, the the disciples of Christ, and they are typically the more liberal version of the Church of Christ, the disciples of Christ. Um, they believe in baptismal regeneration. We looked at that last week briefly, and what does the Bible say about being baptized? Do you have to be baptized to be saved? Yeah, the Spirit of God baptizes us. That's what saves us. Do you have to get dunked in water, sprinkled with water, have water poured over your head? Is God up in heaven going, no, 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 you got to go under the water? No, 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 you got to have the water poured over you. No, 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 you got to have it sprinkled. I'm not saving anybody till you get some properly poured water on your head. We certainly, we don't think of God in that way. They did. Um, he quoted, as I went to you last week and showed you, how many of you looked up the, the longer ending of Mark and, and got yourself more confused? Or maybe you became a little more enlightened as to the longer ending of Mark. You're thinking, how many other parts in the Bible shouldn't be there? Is that us being liberal, saying, well, we don't like those last 11 verses to get rid of them? No, not at all. Uh, it's called 
knowing the Bible and understanding how it got to us, which is what I try to, I try to push as a pastor here. Not everyone likes it. Uh, some get confused by it. Some get angry by it. Uh, he took a part that Mark didn't write and said, no, you've got to be baptized and, or believe and be baptized. Uh, and he said, so you can't be saved unless you're baptized. Well, Jesus said, uh, obey me. You, you remain in me by obeying me. Uh, in John fifteen ten and First John three twenty three says, "Here are my commandments: love God, love your neighbor." Nothing about baptism because God is not interested in whether your head got wet. But baptism is an outward sign of what it means to be saved. And why wouldn't we be baptized? It's just not that it saves. Yeah, Karen. Be, uh, I mean, Jesus was baptized. Hmm? Would it be a man-made type thing? No, baptism was uh, what existed in Judaism and existed in other religions as well. It was a symbol. In Christianity, it was a symbol. Jesus wasn't baptized to be saved, of course. He was identifying with sinners. He was going through, to, he said, to fulfill all righteousness. Um, and now baptism became this significant, it was a signal, not a signal, a sign of, of having sins washed away and being resurrected to new life. So depending upon your religion, in, in Judaism and Christianity, it has a specific point. But it doesn't bring salvation. God's commandments, Jesus says in John 15, 9 to 10, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. What are Jesus' commandments? Well, John tells us in 1 John three twenty three, this is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. There it is. That's the, that's the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. There it is. Everything. So easy. Bible alone. There it is. So we look at Charles Finney tonight. Charles Finney, um, we, we stopped. This is a, a real live picture of him uh, in the days when pictures were becoming a little bit more crisp and clear. That it was always said about Finney's eyes was that you look into his eyes and he was a, an intense guy. He was a lawyer, actually. Yeah, don't want to mess with Chuck. Uh, he was in New York. Uh, his ministry was in New York. He studied to become a lawyer there. He was a Presbyterian choir leader in his church, yet he was not converted um, I don't think he was ever converted, frankly, but he thinks he had an experience. He says, the whole question of gospel salvation opened to my mind. I saw that instead of having or needing any righteousness of my own, I had to submit myself to the righteousness of God through Christ. That sounds good. Gospel salvation seemed to me to be an offer of something to be accepted. All that was necessary in my part was to consent, to give up my sins and accept Christ. The question seemed to be put, will you accept it now? I replied, yes, I will accept it today or die in the attempt. Now, this is a purely Baptist thing at the time. He's Presbyterian. It became a purely Baptist. It's become purely Baptist. And I know that because I grew up Baptist. Will you accept Christ? Do you know nowhere in the New Testament are we ever told to accept Christ? Never. Isn't that crazy? Well, wait a minute. Yeah, it's receive, believe, trust. Now, does that mean we're in some heretical problem if we say accept Christ? No, but accept Christ, it always gives me the, the, the picture of that poor kid on the, on the playground when the football teams are picked, you know, in your fourth, fifth grade. He's that last kid. Yeah, bring him over here. We'll accept him. Little guy that you just run out for a pass. We'll never throw it to you, but whatever. Yeah, come on, we accept you, Jesus. We receive Jesus. We trust Jesus. So it's not in the Bible to accept it. So it's already there in the wording, the wording. Words are important, don't you think? Don't ever ask someone to, to, to accept Jesus into your heart. Do you know that's also not in the Bible? Accept Jesus into your heart. Receive him into your heart. Let him dominate your life. 
but accept Jesus, receive him, ask Jesus into your heart. Do you, do you ever tell that to your little, little child? You look down. Do you, would you like to accept Jesus into your heart or do you want to go to hell? <laughs> I'd like to accept Jesus into my heart. Christian, three years old, mark it up. There it is, done. And these people grow up to say, I came to Christ when I was three years old. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. He says, as I turned to take a seat by the fire, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. How long I continued in this state with this baptism continuing to roll over me, I do not know. I'm I'm never going to question someone who had an experience like that. I didn't. Um, Most people I know didn't. Um, Because it's not necessarily that way. You can have an experience. There are certainly great experiences people have. But to say this implies that everyone must have that experience. And people will strive to have that experience. Or they'll actually believe in Jesus and they're Christians. But they're waiting for this feeling. As they wait for it, they try to find it. And they go elsewhere and they say, well, I was saved over here, but I got the spirit over here. It's all one. It's not necessarily this experience. It can be. But preaching as he did, I think, led to many, many non-revivals. But his revivals are, are famous in what would become the United States of America. He began preaching revivals in western New York. He believed that the revivals, we would say a revival is a, is a work of God. He would say, no, there's nothing to it. Uh, if you're the right speaker and you have the right motivating tone in your voice, you can create a revival anywhere. Those are his words. Not exactly, but that's what he believed. He urged people to make a decision for Christ now. Well, I grew up in the Baptist church. I heard this all the time. Make a decision for Christ right now. Do it. If you're a man, if you can think, you'll do it right now. He adopted revivalist measures like the anxious bench and personalized preaching. You know, the anxious bench. If you're feeling anxious about what you need to do, how the decision you need to make, you come up and you sit down on this bench. That's what led to the, the modern altar call, the invitation. And if you grew up Baptist like me, the church wasn't a church without that. You had to have that. How do people get saved without that? Funny, people came to know Christ for 1,800 years before he invented it. it it's, a, it's a maneuver. It's a way to manipulate, draw out the songs, have a preacher going up there and making up stories and calling people to do something they're not called by the Spirit to do. Uh, he invented this. Calvinist objected to his means of converting because he wasn't trusting in God to do it. He was trying to do it himself. And he was like a, a good car salesman or any other salesman. He was able to bring people and motivate them to do certain things. Hence, it was called a revival. Here's his wife. Finney began teaching at a school in western New York called Oberlin. became Oberlin College. He was a professor there. There he developed and taught a distinct brand of perfectionism called Oberlin Perfectionism. These are people that believe, much in the vein of of John Wesley, that you could become perfect. You could absolutely reach perfection. Now Wesley, true to his, his conscience, realized he was not becoming perfect. Knew he thought he should, but realized he wasn't, and at the end of his life didn't think he was a Christian as a result. These people did. You can become perfect. You, you ever come off? Have you ever come across someone who said something like, "I haven't sinned in ten years, and I don't expect to sin again"? My son was at Texas A&M. He called me and he said, "Dad, there was this guy on campus today. You know, and this was years ago." He said he was out there. He said, "I hadn't sinned since 1983, and I don't plan to sin again." I said, "Well," I said, "Okay, welcome to perfectionism. That's what people think." Uh, but he didn't. He did. And you know what? 
theoretically, we as Christians, we, we can not sin with our hands and feet. We can actually do things where everything we do can, you know, that's above reproach. But you can't escape the mind, can you? You can't drive. You can never drive a car. If you want to never sin, you can never drive a car. You can never be around people again. You walk through the mall, you might say, hey, how you doing? I love you. But inside you're going, you're fat and ugly. You know, we'll say those things. You can't get, you can't escape the mind. You might not do what you think, but you're thinking it already. It's there. But he believed in this perfectionism and believed that he was perfect. He denied original sin. So man isn't born sinful. He denied Christ's substitutionary atonement. Penalty for sin from the Lamb of God was not paid. Jesus died on the cross to show us why we should keep God's law. That's what he thinks. Jesus died on the cross to show people, if you don't keep God's law, that's going to happen to you. How about that? He denied justification by faith alone, and which is God's declaring all who believe as righteous. When you believe in Christ, God declares us righteous, hence justified by faith alone. No, he said we need to be righteous by keeping God's laws. He was very much into keeping God's laws, and he believed he did. Isn't that what the Pharisees did? Pharisees set up the law to where they could keep God's laws in their minds and thought that they were perfect. And of course God loves us. We're good people. But that's not a far cry from people today. They may not be looking at God's law. But people have, a, have set up a law in their own minds. So when you ask them, do you think you're a good person? They typically say, yeah, I'm a good person. You need to take a Ray Comfort and says, oh, it's a little, let's, let's just, let's test that, can we? And he just goes through the Ten Commandments. He just usually just goes through four of them. Okay, well, you've, all four of them. So do you still think you're a good person? And across the board, they all say, yes. You're a liar, a blasphemer, an adulterer at heart. And a murderer at heart. So, yeah, I'm still a good person. I don't, Folks, the world has gone mad. That is not a joke. That's not meant to be funny. I mean, I, I scroll through. I, I like Matt Walsh. I don't know why I keep watching Matt Walsh because he keeps asking the same question and he keeps getting the same dumb answer. What is a woman? The answer, someone who identifies as a woman, to which Matt always pauses. Okay, I'm trying to understand what the woman is that you're being identified as. What, and people won't answer it. We have a Supreme Court justice who does not know what a woman is. She's going to make decisions based to defend our country, but she doesn't know what a woman is. She knows. She knows. Yeah, well, we all know she knows. We're, we know she's not dumb. She's not going to say it. But I think by now these people have convinced themselves that they really don't know. We live in a day of insanity. People keeping their own laws, doing what they think is right. Mm. This was Finney. This is not new. And he said there's no need for the Holy Spirit's regeneration. We preach God's spirit regenerates you and you believe. He said, no, you can do it on your own. He is a full, all-out Pelagian. Remember we looked at Pelagius debating who was his, who was his nemesis? Saint Augustine. These two, Augustine said, no, we are born in sin, original sin. We are depraved. We are dead we are totally unable. We need a Savior. God needs to work through us. We need God. It's all about God. Pelagius, no, we don't need God. We're not born in sin. We can do anything we want by ourselves on our own. Enter Charles Finney. This is just Pelagius reincarnated. And yet he is 
on many people's list, one of the greats. I had a, a seminary professor who said that he was trying to, he was interviewing to get into the seminary, Dallas Seminary, and he told uh, my professors it was Jeff Bingham, and Bingham said, yeah, he went through all these theologians. He said, I've read all the greats. And he listed some of what we would call the greats, at least theologians, and, and Charles Finney. And Bingham said, excuse me, Finney. Finney is one of the greats. Oh, yes, one of the great preachers and theologians of our day. He said, that said everything. He said, either you haven't read him and you've heard he's good, or you've read him and you can't figure out that he's an absolute heretic. But folks, what Finney believed is what your average Southern Baptist and American Baptist church believes today. To say nothing of Presbyterian and Methodist, same thing. That's the, the religion today. It's spawned out of this day and age. How many of you know who Phil Johnson is? Phil Johnson has a website used to on bad theologies, really bad theologies, and total whack jobs. And uh, here's what uh, Johnson says about Finney. By corrupting the doctrine of justification by faith, by denying the doctrines of original sin and total depravity, by minimizing the sovereignty of God while enthroning the power of the human will, and above all, by undermining the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, Finney filled the bloodstream of American evangelicalism with poisons that have kept the movement maimed even to this day. There you have it. So, enter the millennialists. Millennialism is a... You ever met somebody who's just completely consumed with end times? I have. As a preacher, you meet them all the time. They want to come up and they want to talk to you. I got a question about the end times. I got a question about Revelation. I got a question about the Antichrist. I got a question about the number of the beasts. I got a question about this. And the one guy will come up and say, do you see a, a difference between the naos? And I go right away, that, that's a, it's a Greek word for a temple. And I'm going up, stop there. And he wants to equate it to this temple and that temple. And you know what? Paul Hawkins and I know one very, very well. And we've known him for He can't carry on a conversation with you without talking about this and that. Just completely consumed with end times eschatology. Be careful of them. Well, this enters into the church. Um, I don't know how well you can see that, but there's all four of your, your or at least four of the, the main views of the end times. Post-tribulational premillennialism. Um, here you've got the cross, the death of Christ, the tribulation from the cross is existing, the second coming of Christ occurs, the millennium, and then last judgment. Okay? They call all of that the tribulation. That's not what I believe. Pre-tribulational, which is dispensational premillennialism, that's what I believe. The cross, from the cross to the first little line there, you've got the church age. And then you've got there the second uh, coming of, of the church, which is the rap of Christ, I should say, the rapture there at that first little dot, little line. And then from the rapture to uh, seven years later, uh, that's called the tribulation, and then Jesus comes, and when he comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth, he does so for a thousand years. That's the millennium, and then we go into heaven, and we're and it's, it's eternity there. Post-millennialism, uh, there's the cross, there's a time that we've lived up to a, cert, to a certain time. You keep preaching the gospel, you keep preaching the gospel. Finally, enough people believe in Jesus, and Jesus sends his kingdom. That's post-millennialism. It's very big in evangelism, and I love that. You know, it's all about evangelism, but it's hoping that more and more people come to know Christ. Well, how are we doing now with that? Who can believe in post-millennialism? You have to be the most depressed people on the planet if you think that that's true. Then amillennialism just doesn't believe in a literal millennium at all. There is no 1,000-year reign of Christ. Jesus Christ is reigning in the church right now. There's no literal millennium. He could come at any time. As you've heard me say before, amillennialism is the most simplistic of all. It's a lazy, 
ridiculously lazy way of viewing the Bible because you have to just throw out so many different views, so many different passages. It's just, yeah, we're living here and we're living now and Jesus is coming back and don't, don't bother me with the details. Well, the details are throughout the Bible, which is God's word. Uh, if it's in God's word, it's not a secondary issue. So millennialism in the history of the church, um, premillennialism, premillennialism prevailed until the fourth century up to Constantine. But when Constantine became the emperor, he's king of the world. Looks like to the church that the kingdom has come. We're all Christians whether we believe in Jesus or not. Amillennialism prevailed greatly to the 19th centuries. No literal kingdom. Uh, because after Constantine began, you know, great, a thousand years later, there was no Christ. Uh, so people began to view the Bible a little bit differently. Postmillennialism in the 19th and 20th centuries. Bring people to Christ, then Christ will return. Um, enter William Miller, who was born in 1782, died in 1848. And the Millerites. How many of you have a Seventh-day Adventist background? Okay, good. A little bit? Okay, good, yeah. So you might know some of this. Um, even Seventh-day Adventists might not know all this. William Miller was, a, was consumed with end times. He was a premillennialist obsessed with eschatology, and he predicted the world would end in October 1843. Why predict the world would end in 1843 when Jesus says what? No man knows the day or the hour. No man knows. But apparently Miller thought he did. And Jesus would come in 1843. He took Daniel 8.14, which speaks of 2,300 evenings and 2,300 mornings as 2,300 years. That's a huge jump because that's not what it's saying. He began his time in 457 B.C. when King Artaxerxes of Persia commanded Jerusalem to be rebuilt. He counted those down, and he comes to a new Jerusalem would be rebuilt in 1843. Jesus would return. Obviously, Jesus did not. It didn't happen, and he died five years later. Another false prophet. Miller's miscalculations spawned a series of visions in those unwilling to accept his errors. A guy named Hiram Edson, 1806-1802, I should say, he experienced the visions of Christ's return. Now, I put that down because that's just what history books say. He thinks he experienced the vision of Christ's return. Joseph Bates came along, and he was convinced that the true Sabbath uh, was to be observed on the Saturdays, and he said that the seventh seal was the Sabbath. Okay, figure that one out. Then Ellen G. White, this is a picture of Ellen, who died in 1915. She had a, a visionary entrance into the Holy of Holies, confirming the teachings of both Edson and Bates. So Miller's dead, Edson comes along, Bates comes along, and White comes along and says, those guys were right, I'm going to tell you what all they meant. Um, Seventh-day Adventists rely on White's interpretations of Scripture for guidance. They're not a cult per se, because they don't have their own book, but they use the Bible, yet they rely on the interpretations of Ellen G. White. She claimed that Jesus did come and he inhabited the heavenly sanctuary in 1843, as Miller had said. But since Christians had failed to worship on the Sabbath day, which is Saturdays, not Sundays, Jesus' appearance was only spiritual. How did she get that? She had a vision. Yeah, you have a vision. Boom. You know more than the rest of us that didn't. She stressed that Christians should worship on the true Sabbath since God never took away that command. And today's Seventh-day Adventists believe that Jesus will return, hence Advent, he will return on a Saturday, and they'll be the only ones there to receive him because they're worshiping on Saturday. Ms. White. Uh, they only worship on Saturdays, as I said. They deny the finality of Christ's atonement on the cross at Calvary. They proclaim the work of investigative judgment from 1844. So investigate. You want to be saved. Go back and start investigating what God has done since 1844 because he came in 1843. And if you do, that will cause the sins of the righteous to be carried away by Satan, who is the great scapegoat spoken of in the 
in Leviticus 16, as well as salvation based on morality. Salvation based on morality. Our buddy Ben Carson, we like him as a politician. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, these people are not Christians. Uh, certainly don't read their Bibles, and if they do, are waiting for Ellen G. White's interpretation of it, which seems to me a little kooky. Um, all of this, and all these people, and all these things going on are starting to brew. Put all the different Campbellism and, and the different versions of that and the Millerites and put it in a, a big pot, start stirring it up, add the shakers to it. Shakers, it's a real, real group of people. Jesus was the male Christ who returned to earth as a woman. Mother Anne Lee, there she is. He, she, there's Jesus as a woman. And he initiated the millennium according to her in 1780. Anne Lee gave new apostolic power. Uh, she moved into a Shaker community and enjoyed, at least her apostolic power told, she would tell people, move into a, the nearest Shaker community. And if you do, and you believe like us, you can in, be enjoying the millennium as we are. The only way to escape God's judgment, according to Mother Anne Lee, the female Jesus, was to join a Shaker community. These are different than the Quakers. Shakers, Quakers. Here they are, in a holy huddle. They are led by the Spirit of God, they believe, not by the dead word of the Bible. That's what they think the Bible is. They confess sins to community leaders. They sought perfection. They abstained from marriage sex. Uh, they had the shaking or the jerks, tongues, the holy dance. Uh, there were many converts of shakers in the Second Great Awakening under people like, uh, they start shaking around, you know, barking like dogs, uh, there's, you can join the Millerites, you can join the, uh, the Finneyites, you can join the Shakers. You know, there's got a place for everyone. Yeah, I think that's where, where uh, what's his name got that? A place for everyone here. Right? If you watch, how many of you watch the Astros game? And the Astros game is interrupted every stinking night with the people from the Fellowship of the Woodlands. There's a place for everyone here. Boom, there it is. A place for everyone in the Second Great Awakening theology. In the mid-1800s, there were over 20 Shaker communities and mostly in the Northeast. Shakers left the world and moved into a closer Shaker communities like these in New Harmony, New York. For those who lived in the Shaker community, escaping God's wrath in the millennium had begun. And they gained a lot of converts in the northern states during the Second Great Awakening. These are the locations. So note the locations here on this map of the Shaker communities by 1827. By the early 1900s, uh, most of them had been abandoned, so this is what happens. And in 2016, there were only three remaining Shakers living at Sabbath Day Lake, Maine. The man standing at the right is not even a full member, but only a, uh, an entry-level guy. So there you go. There's, that's what happens, Bill, <laughs> when you can't perpetuate your species. Now, this is what's called, you heard of the burned-over district. The burned over district means it is just this hodgepodge, that area in New York. All of these communities and all the religious uh, and religions coming through there, they just soak this place. Remember I said earlier, throw this in here, throw that in. They're all there and just mix them all up and you've got all these communities, this burned over district. Um, in the burned over district where Finney had preached, perfectionism took root. People wanted to be perfect. He Strive to make them perfect. Many perfectionists carried their ideas much farther than Finney, believing that a Christian could achieve utter sinlessness and enter a new realm of Christian experience. Why not? 
Charles Lovett, a perfectionist evangelist, was staying with a Mr. and Mrs. Chapman on their farm near Oneida, New York. This is a fun story. So, so Charles Lovett, he's a perfectionist evangelist, meaning he believes you can be sinless and perfect. And he was staying with Mr. and Mrs. Chapman on their farm. While Mr. Chapman was away, Lovett and Mrs. Chapman decided to prove the strength of their perfection by sleeping together chastely. Yeah. Mr. Chapman caught them and whipped them both, going blind in the process. Lovett and Mrs. Chapman interpreted Mr. Chapman's blindness as a judgment of God upon him, concluding that for the perfect, all things are lawful. Thus, there was no sin in enjoying sexual fellowship between two perfect people, to which I respond. (laughs) For you young people, this is called the church lady. Saturday Night Live in the 1980s. I couldn't resist it. But, yes, Dana Carvey. So, again, back to that, you've, this, is what, this is kind of the thinking that's happened. I mean, he went blind doing it. We got away with it. Continue on with the process. He's the wrong. We're in the right. People do that today. This is, this is sin nature for people who are not saved. Even adults do it. It happens all the time. People today sleep together. They have children out of wedlock. They do everything that the Bible says not to do, and they get away with it. And they just tend to think, well, it must not be me. God must really love me. I can get away with it. If you're a counselor like me, you hear these stories and you kind of get into the minds of some people. Is that, and, and, and I understand sin. I mean, I understand the, the processing of it. But to call yourself a Christian and think it is just deplorable. So enter the Oneida community. How many of you have silverware in your home? You'll all relate to this. You go home and you look at the back of your silverware and it will say Oneida. This is where it comes from. John Humphrey Noyes, a convert from Finney's Revival. So here's another one, fruit, rotten fruit of Finney's Revival. And a perfectionist was seeking societal perfection. Going to move on to the next best thing. In 1848, he formed a community that lived in a communistic style and shared everything, including spouses. Interpreting John 21:22 as Jesus returning in the first century, this is where Jesus walks away, talks to, to, to Peter. And uh, he tells Peter um, how he's going to die. You'll stretch your arms out. And Peter says, what about him? And he's pointing to John. And Jesus said what? He said, if I want him to remain until I come back, what's that to you? Now, that doesn't mean that John did until Jesus came back. John died. Jesus hasn't come back. He interpreted, however, as Jesus did come back because that's what he said there. True Christians believe this. They are perfect and they cannot sin himself being one of those in his own mind. Monogamous marriage, as a result, is done away with for those living with Jesus in the resurrection. All males and females are free to fellowship in the sacrament of sex with each other. Now, I've been through the Bible many times. I've never seen the sacrament of sex. I've seen the Lord's Supper, and I've seen baptism, but this one I have not. Since monogamous marriage might pit a couple's interest against the interest of the group, think about that. Since monogamous marriage... One man, one woman might pit a couple's interest against the interest of the group. Marriage was replaced with, quote unquote, complex marriage, community sex and marriage as a religious ecstasy. The United community grew and prospered, manufacturing items and selling them to earn a living. Noyes allowed 13 year old virgins into the community. 
The community was disabled in 1881, and Noyes fled on charges of bigamy. The members owned shares of a joint stock company, which continued in the manufacture of silverware. So every time you use that silverware, just go, ew. <laughs> Look, I'll just put it this way. If, if you are one of those people who wants to argue and gripe against anything Halloween, anything Halloween, you have to first start by getting rid of your own night of silverware. So with all of that mix, Joseph Smith comes along. All of these religions, all these crazy people, Joseph Smith is wondering, which one's right? Look how young he was when he died. As a teen, he moved to New York with his family where Charles Finney had preached. In Joseph's town of Palmyra, New York, four denominations, Congregational, Presbyterian, Baptist, and Methodist, were competing for the townspeople. Smith wondered which one was right. Right there in that burned out district, which one is right? They're all, but you know what? Congregational, Methodist, Baptist, and, and, and uh, Presbyterian churches, we do all believe the same things. In fact, our, the things that we disagree with, and the, at least those who, who love Christ, our, our differences are very minor. And they really come down to baptism and church government, which are not, church government is not clearly defined in the scripture um, and how it's done. Uh, we agree. 90% of the time, if not more. Uh, but when you get into the Second Great Awakening, these groups begin to divide themselves. And Smith is wondering which one's right. Reading the epistle of James, which says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and it shall be given to him. At length I came to the conclusion, Smith said, that I must either remain in darkness and confusion, or I must do as James directs, that is, ask of God. So he asks of God, Lord, give me direction. Uh, he and his family were known treasure hunters. In fact, the Mormon church has systematically gone through uh, libraries, microfish. You remember microfish? And destroyed old articles that were, I mean, he lived in the 1840s. Uh, old articles of his family. He was in the news often. He was a quack. He was hunting treasure. He used divining rods. He was into the, uh, to the occult. Um, and the Mormon church through the, the years has gone through and tried to systematically get rid of anything that brings Joseph Smith into a bad light. But they were known treasure hunters. They sought seer stones and money digging. He had a vision of an angel telling him of these golden plates. Um, the golden plates, he believed, he found, he found. No one else was to read them, only he could read them. They were 200 pounds made of pure gold. And he talks of, of taking this and running, yeah, running back I want all of you to go home tonight and just pick up 50 pounds and try to run. Just 50. So um, he believes in a nutshell, it was his, what he says the plate said, were essentially that during the Babylonian captivity of Israel, 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar came in and crushed what was left of Israel, of, of Judah, that a section, a group of Israelites departed, Jews. They left and they came to the Americas. And they lived in what would become New York. And these were, and they, they planted these, or they buried these plates. And uh, the angel Moroni was there. And some factoring into there. And he told them what to do and blah, blah, blah. The interesting thing is in modern day, all you have to do, and, and by the way, the, the, uh, Smith said that the modern Indians, the Indians that inhabited, the Native Americans, I should say, in the American soil, he says, no, those are ancient Jews. All DNA tests say not even close. Everything the man wrote about, or I should say nothing that he wrote about, has been found in any 
any form. And he died in 1840, 1844. Uh, everything, all, it's really, when you read the Book of Mormon, when you read the Pearl of Great Price, you are reading what we call uh, fictional history. It's historical fiction. It's a story, and it's a pretty fun story. He actually thinks it's true, and so do the people that, it, that adhere to it. His wife, Emma Joseph, obtained uh, the plates from Moroni. Uh, Emma, among others, transcribed his seerstone translation of the plates that he found. Hence, out comes the Book of Mormon. When Joseph gets permission to show three other witnesses the golden plates, he shows them to Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris. Uh, and in this, the new church is formed. In 1829, Joseph and about 30 other people formed a new church, the true church, in their eyes, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There it is. There was continuing revelation. This goes down as a cult because they have all different books. The Seventh-day Adventists still do the Bible, although they need an interpreter. They have other books altogether. When specific questions came up about the new church, Joseph sought and received direct revelation on specific questions. So people would ask him, what do we do about this? What do we do about that? So he would go and say, well, let me get a revelation from this angel who will show me. These are collected into another book called The Doctrine and Covenants in Mormonism. In Independence, Missouri, this was the place where Jesus was to return and set up his millennial kingdom. This is a specific prophecy of Joseph Smith. In Independence, Missouri, Jesus would return, set up his his Millennial kingdom, build his temple. Uh, many moved there uh, to buy property, and the three witnesses were among those pioneers. Well, here it is today. There it was in 1907, the left, and there's that land today. Well, what does the Bible say about a prophet who prophesies and doesn't get one right? Stone them. They're false prophets. There's the site. There's no temple. In the background, the picture cut it off. There's a, a little center back there, a little visitor center. Uh, but it's not a temple. That lot sits today empty, showing it should have a big sign. Joseph Smith was a false prophet. Jesus didn't return, didn't set up his kingdom. There is no temple here. Nothing to see. Some Campbellites in Kirtland, Ohio, heard about Smith, and most of the church converted to his religion. The pastor, Sidney Rigdon, converted and became the intellectual leader of Mormonism. Another named Parley Pratt did the same thing. Uh, this moved to Kirtland. Uh, Smith moved his church to Kirtland, Ohio, and under the influence of Sidney Rigdon, began receiving revelations that significantly changed Mormon doctrine. Well, that's what you do when you invent your religion. Just keep having revelations. No one else knows, just you. You exalt yourself above. That's what a cult leader is. Ask me, God's talking to me, and I'll tell you. The church prospered there but while in independence, but they were persecuted. Although they prospered, they were persecuted in independence. Smith got involved in land speculation schemes. That's what you want from a good preacher, right? Get caught up in land speculation schemes. He created his own anti-bank uh, to loan non-existent money. <laughs> he had many secret sexual liaisons. He was a sexual pervert. Meanwhile, Missourians ran the Mormons out. That says at, should be out of independence and out of their homes. Um, into the far west. Mormons in independence traveled north to far west, Missouri, to establish a new Mormon town. Scandals in Kirtland forced Smith to flee, and he too came to far west in Missouri. Many, including the three witnesses, decided that Smith was a fallen prophet. Got tired of that. Smith managed to excommunicate them. That's what happens when you don't like people that don't like you. Just excommunicate them. 
Smith sends 12 apostles, including Brigham Young, to England on a mission. This far west area, they moved now to Navajo. After the Missourians and the Mormons came to war, Mormons left there. They purchased their own city in Illinois, which they named Navajo. At Navajo, Smith set up a theocracy. That's where God rules. Finally revealing to the world his notion of plural marriage. Do do you see something running through these crazies? They're perverts. It's about sex to them. That's what they want. And they set themselves up in power to be able to do what they want. Smith was suspected when someone attempted to assassinate the governor of Missouri. Hey, Joseph Smith wants him dead. He was arrested, and an Illinois mob broke in the jail and killed him in 1844. Brigham Young gained control of the church and led them to Salt Lake Valley, which was then outside the bounds of the United States, into Salt Lake City, where they are today. And here's that uh, site of the Mormon Trail, all the way from, from Illinois to Iowa, Nebraska, Wyoming, into Utah, where they are today. So the results of the Second Great Awakening, it's not a pretty thing. Here's what happened. Number one, an Arminian worldview came to dominate American Christianity. Um, Calvinism is a biblical doctrine that can be proven from the Bible. Arminianism tries to contradict all five points of Calvinism. And when you have to take passages here, oh, this says this, this says this, this says this, passages um, have a context, don't they? Every passage has a context. Words are defined within a context, even in regular usage. And so this Armenian worldview, by the way, this is not an Armenian worldview. That would be people from Armenia. Make sure you get the difference there. Armenian versus Armenian. One's a people, one's a belief. The Armenian worldview came to dominate American Christianity after the Second Great Awakening. The emphasis was on feelings, not truth. Still goes on today. You can't argue with somebody who's had a feeling, can you? You ever tried to? Well, can you tell me that that was true? I know it because I felt it. That's how a Mormon comes to be a Mormon. Mormons are told to read the Book of Mormon and pray, and you will feel what? Burning in the bosom. Because that burning in the bosom means that God is with you, and it's true. I felt a burning in the bosom before. Too much Mexican food. Too many pepperonis. (laughs) Folks, please, I I, I plead with you. Make sure that feelings don't dictate what you believe. Every one of us will come to, we're all going to die, you know that. But some of us are going to come to a point where we know the end is coming. We know it's near. Uh, Maybe from old age, maybe from a a disease we know is going to take us. As a pastor, I've sat with many at this point. And I found that most, if not all of them, are frightened what might not be true and I always go through it it's great pleasure to say okay let's just talk about what's true I know you're scared I know you're hurting you're about to die I get that but let's talk about what's true is there a God oh yeah there has to be a God did God become flesh is Jesus God in flesh yes did he die on that cross for your sins yes I believe it was he raised Three days later, for your salvation, yes. If you believe in him, are you saved? Yes. Does God lie? No. And I don't care what you feel. The truth is the truth, whether we feel it or not. And it ain't changing. That's the beauty of Christianity. It is a researchable truth. If you don't like it, you can go research it. You can go find it. It's true. If anything's historical, Christianity is historical. 
If you believe anything in history without having been there and you believe it, why wouldn't you believe the historical truths on the Bible? It's based on so much evidence. It's true whether we feel it or not. Don't let a religion try to make you feel anything. Be careful of music. Music is beautiful, and I love it as much as anyone. And I want to be a better musician. I want to sing better. I want to play better. I love music, but music is dangerous because it gives us a feeling. You sing too many songs before a worship service, and that worship guy up there, that's the worship guy. Now you've got to sit down from your singing and listen to an old boring preacher. Folks, that's where the worship begins, sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing the word of God. Now, I'm not Jesus. You know that. But speaking the words of Jesus, that's worship. Sitting still, being still and knowing that God is God. Not about music. Show me one place in the New Testament. There is one place, but show me the one place in the New Testament that exalts music at all. It, it comes from being filled with the Spirit. What were you saying, Leslie? They sang a hymn, that's right. They did sing a hymn. doesn't say that you should. It doesn't say what hymn it was. It wasn't a John West or Charles Wesley tune. We know that. It wasn't even a Gregorian chant long before that. No, it, it, it's talking about being filled with the Spirit. And what do we do when we're filled with the Spirit of God? We sing psalms of praise to each other. So I'll greet you with a song. It means that I'm filled with the Spirit of God. Already, music has this Strange way of making us feel something that may or may not be true. Another result of the Second Great Awakening is an uneducated ministry became acceptable, even preferable. Um, today, I, I mean, I've been scorned on many occasions for having gone to, to a seminary, which is a graduate school of theology. Uh, why would you need to do that? I have the Spirit of God. All I need is the Bible. That's all anyone needs. You're right. But a seminary takes you into deeper education in the Bible, better background studies, historical studies, language studies. Um, to go through that, that hell, I mean that time period, is to, to, be, is to be shown. This is, what, this is what you're entering into. If you can manage this, you might be able to manage church ministry. Um, but yet people today will say, we don't need that. In fact, the, the last people people trust today are educated Bible theologians on many occasions. And they're taught to do that. They're taught to do that, to not prefer them. Emphasis is on sanctification which is, in their words, being perfect. Second blessing and perfectionism. So sanctification, we, we like sanctification. But sanctification follows a very important one. It's called what? Justification. When we are justified, we are declared righteous. How, are we, how do we get declared righteous, according to Romans 3? Believe. Believe Jesus. Believe God that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing in him, we have salvation, and all of our sins are removed. The moment... That happens. We are regenerated and justified. And at that moment, we're born again, aren't we? And we, like a baby, what does a baby begin to do as soon as a baby's born? They begin to grow. I mean, you look at a baby a week after a baby's born, and wow, baby's gotten big. Because when a baby's born, they're not too pretty. Yours was. I know yours were. I, I mean, that, that's a given. But, but, you know, they come out, and their head's all twisted. And Daniel's was like a football. And they sucked him out, and you know, his head just went like that. And, squeezes everything but you know his head shaped up later you know, it looked like it, 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 you know that knot back there that doorknob that where the suction cup came it, you know we we he's okay now he got a big round head you know he his head was so big cheryl used to have this thing she put over his head and, was, and it just drove me crazy trying to get off of him you know because the kids are, like to wet themselves give everything and and one day 
um, I don't know if you've ever been there where you're trying to get clothes off a kid quickly and so it doesn't get everywhere. I just kind of lost it. And I couldn't usually that, that one thing she put on was a nice little shirt. You got to you know, twist it, put a bunch of Vaseline around to get it around his big thick melon. Well, one day I said, no. So I took it and went, Arr! and it, you, you know, you heard it. Well, I don't care. His head was too fat. Anyway, I got it off. Anyway, kids grow, they, they begin to be physically sanctified, we might say. So anyway, we come to Christ, we're justified, and we begin to grow in our sanctification. Justification is like that. Boom, I said justification, I meant sanctification. We're saved, then we begin to grow in our faith. They say, no, the emphasis is on not justification. You come to know God as you can do it. You do it, and then you get better, and then you'll get a second blessing, and then one day you'll be perfect. Like me, Charles Finney. Methodists and the Baptists became the largest denominations in America, and they bought every one of these things, hook, line, and sinker, your modern Methodist, Baptist churches. Um, there was a time, uh, at least in, uh, in Wales, I mean, one of my favorite preachers of all time was Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, born in 1899, died in 1980, um, from Westminster Chapel in London, and he was a, you don't hear this anymore, a Calvinist Methodist. You ever heard of such a thing? He was. He was methodical. He was, you can still get his sermons today. What an incredibly awesome man. Uh, but there's no such thing as that anymore, as a Calvinist Methodist. Uh, there's no Calvinist, Calvinistic or, or even Lutheran Lutherans, people that believe like Martin Luther. They're not there. If they are, they're in small groups, uh, and they are scorned by the larger groups. Uh, the Second Great Awakening brought a lot of garbage into the church. Is a big, big is a big mess to clean up in the modern church. And when you start a Bible-only church, if you ever do, uh, or just being a part of it, people come in here, and it's a melting pot. Some people are sick to death of the denominations. They come in, and, and we're trying to do a Bible-only thing, and people bring in their, their ideas of what they believed in other churches, and that's okay. I mean, we're all trying to get over uh, many of those things, some of the legalisms and whatnot. But uh, um, here's where we are today. We started in the first century, and where it's come, this great awakening in the United States, that's where we leave it in around the 1840s. And so do you think it'll get better as we come to the modern day? Well, in the next few weeks, we'll watch how it continues to evolve to where it finally culminates in the predictable preacher of our day, Joel Osteen. He is the predictable one of where everything leads to that guy. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that your word would continually convict us, that we would be readers of it. We would be diligent students of your word. We would never worship the Bible, but we would worship the God that it unveils. You have revealed to us through your word. May we be careful with it. May we be careful to read it cover to cover. Challenge us to do so, to set aside the time we need to. May we be great evangelists to bring forth your word. We live in a day where people are confused, and we know why. We see the history. We thank you for bringing us out of that mess. Pray that we would do our part to, to bring others out of it as well, if you would so will it. May we be strong. May we be courageous. May we be orthodox. And may we do all things for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 